good to see all of you here this morning. If you have your copies of God's Word, we're going to continue through the book of Acts, and we're going to pick up in chapter 21 that I think has a lot of practical advice in it this morning. And uh, so Paul has been traveling. He has set his mind that he wants to go to Jerusalem, and he wants to be there by Pentecost, and he is going as fast as he possibly can because he's going to bring a love offering from the Gentile churches in Asia to the Jewish mother church in Jerusalem uh, for the purpose of unity and humanitarian relief. And as he's on his way there, these are the things that are happening. Picking up in verse 1 of chapter 21. When he had parted from them and set sail... We ran straight course to Kaz and to the next day to Rhodes and from there Patera. And having found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard to set sail there. When we came to sight of Cyprus, leaving it, we left and we kept sailing to Syria and landed in Tyre. And then the ship had to unload its cargo, so I decided to start looking up the disciples there. And we stayed there for seven days and they kept telling Paul through the Spirit, don't set foot in Jerusalem. When our days there had ended, we left and we started our journey. While they, all with their wives and their children, they escorted us until we were out of the city. And after we had kneeled down on the beach there, we prayed. We said farewell to one another. Then we went aboard the ship and we returned home again. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at... This book collection in here gets bigger and bigger. (laughs) How to be a good elder, how to be better at missions, how to be better at evangelism. This is passive aggressive, folks. All right, no, I'm just teasing. They get to the uh, area of the Potomac River. Let's see, where where are we here? Tomias. And after greeting them, the brethren there, we stayed with them for a day. On the next day, we left and came to Caesarea and entering the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, uh, we stayed with him. Now, this man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. And as we were staying there for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we had heard this, we all as local residents began begging Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And Paul answered, what in the world are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but to die in Jerusalem for the name of Jesus Christ. And since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking the will of the Lord be done. I don't know about you, but I read that, and that just seems like a bunch of random places and locations and ideas, thoughts and and some words. But there's actually, uh, Dr. Luke has recorded this for a very specific reason, and you'll see it. At the very end of verse 14, the will of the Lord be done. And that's what we're going to be looking at in our lives this morning. But before we do that, let's open in a word of prayer. I ask God's blessing because you do not need to hear from me. We need to hear from him. So let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you. I ask, Lord, and I confess that you alone are God. I am not. 
These are your people, not mine. It is your will we seek, not ours. It is your glory we want to see. Father, we ask that you would use us. We ask that your Holy Spirit would teach us. Father, I ask that you help me to remember what I studied. Give me clear thoughts. Bind my tongue that I may speak clearly for your glory. I confess my failures in front of these people, most of which I do on purpose, some on accident. Either way, Lord, I repent of them. I ask for your forgiveness. I pray that these people would love you more today than they did yesterday. And I pray the same for myself. Father, bless our time together. It is, it is precious to be all gathered around your word all at once so that we might learn about you together and move together. And so, Father, I pray this in your Son's precious and holy name. And if you're awake and ready to learn, say amen. All right, here we go. What is the will of God for my life? What is the will of God for my life? This is probably right up there with one of the number one questions I receive from people. And some of the number one question I receive from the guy in the mirror as well. It is in some ways a very easy question to answer. And in some other ways, a very difficult question to answer. So let me start out with the easy answer as it relates to God's will in our lives. My friends, the first thing we need to understand, the first thing we need to understand when it comes to the will of God in our lives is this. The vast majority of God's will in our lives is clearly revealed in His Word. It is clearly revealed in His Word, in His commands, His principles, His precepts that He has given in His Word. We do not need to seek God's will in areas where He has already clearly addressed them. Allow me to explain. No prayer is needed if you're trying to figure out if you should marry an unbeliever. No prayer is needed for that. No seeking the Lord is needed if, you, if you're wondering if you should in, continue to engage in immorality or stealing or lying. No prayer is needed about faithfully attending church or using your gifts to edify the bride of Christ. Those clearly are already the will of God. No prayer is needed about being faithful to your spouse or whether or not you should continue a hobby that has become an idol in your life. In fact, let me be crystal clear, actually praying about these things that are clear in the Word of God is in some ways sinning in our lives. Because what we are doing with such prayers is trying to delay or avoid the obedience that has already been called in our lives. Or worse, we're trying to conceal our own sinfulness with spiritual trappings and activities. But there are areas of God's will in our life that is not known and can be difficult to figure out in our lives, in areas where God's Word is not necessarily clear. Things that, like where we should work, 
or how we should spend our money on something or who we should marry or where we should live. When it comes to these kind of things, God's will can be rather difficult to determine from time to time. And truth be told, there is no mechanical formula. There's no mechanical formula found in Scripture to determine the, the discernible will of God in our lives. In areas where, you know what, do we have two good options in front of us. What am I to do? There's no formula or mechanism for that. And by the way, I think that's kind of what God's design is. Because if I can be honest with you, if finding the discernible will of God in our lives really came down to just a formula or a mechanism, truth be told, that is exactly what we would turn it into. Allow me to explain. What I mean by that is we would simply use the formula rather than seeking a relationship with Jesus Christ. Because when it comes to the discernible will of God, the primary guide that he uses outside of his completed word, the Bible, the primary guide that he uses is our relationship and our walk with him. And by the way, that's what we're going to see in the text. That's what we're going to see here in the text. Was it God's will for Paul to go to Jerusalem? Or was that Paul's will to go to Jerusalem? Was this God's desire or was it Paul's desire? And what seems like in this text, when you read those 14 verses, what seems like nothing more than a thought salad. Does everyone know what I mean when I say the word thought salad? Anyone at all? Just random leaves of information. These random possibilities, locations, sales schedules, contradictory desires from godly people. What we have here in reality is placed by Luke for us is how do people seek the will of God in unclear unclear times? And by paying close attention to why he writes this, we can gain principles on how to do the same thing in our lives. So let's pick up in verses 1 through 6 here. This is rather interesting. The first thing we see here are a lot of places, of which I can pronounce all of them but one. There are a lot of places here. You can see we got Kaz and Rhodes and Patera, not Pantera, Patera, Cyprus, Tyre, Syria. Now, when you add these things all up, what we see here is this. Paul is absolutely determined to get to Jerusalem, to visit the church before Pentecost. He wants to get there at Pentecost because that's when the, the mother church will be at its largest. It will be swelled. There will be a, a lot of believers there at that time. He wanted to bring the love offering and financial assistance to the poor and the persecuted church in Jerusalem that is going through very difficult times right now. And by the way, he's bringing it from Gentile churches that were started in Asia. Now, he did this for two primary reasons. Number one, it would bring unity in a very diverse group of young believers, a young church. It would bring unity between the Jews and the Gentiles. It would also bring relief and love from fellow believers. So with those two reasons, even though he's trying to keep up a good pace and get there by Pentecost, uh, in Jerusalem by Pentecost, he was again delayed like he was in Miletus, and he, he began to talk to the elders of Ephesus. He's delayed again because it says right here, the ship had to unload its cargo. Now, this will take probably... 
I don't know, 10-ish days, because he spends seven days with the believers themselves at this time as they're unloading his cargo. Once again, Paul has some unexpected some dead time here. So what does Paul do? Well, what, you want to know what Paul does? He does the clear expressed will of God first. It says here he sought out other believers where he was at in order to have community with him. We see this in the words. It says here, Paul goes and he starts looking up the disciples in this area in order to have community with them entire. Now, this is the second gold star point when it comes to finding the, 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 the unclear will of God in our lives. Now, the first one is the clear principles and the clear teaching within the word of God. That was the first one we already touched on. If the Bible says it, we are to do it. If the Bible says don't do it, we are not to do it. That is the will of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. But now we get to the second one here. It's a second gold star. How many here are old enough to remember getting gold stars in Sunday school that they would post in front of the entire class based on your performance in that class? How many here are old enough to remember that shame was a viable teaching tool? Amen? I remember that at Hudsonville Baptist Church. There was a whole grid up there, and if you brought your Bible and you wore your haircut and your tie, I'm just joking, not really, all right, but, and you brought a friend and all that stuff, you'd get a gold star, and it was up there for everyone to see. How many here remember your line, not that full? Anyone at all? You know, all the girls there, I remember Brenda and Sherry and Heather over there in Hudsonville in the early 80s, stars all the way across. Mine looked like new moon cycles, just, you know, periodically they put one up there just to stop the pain. This is the second gold star. The first being obey the clear teaching of the word of God. The second one here is when seeking the will of God in undiscernible areas, the Bible clearly states here through example, but later in Paul's teaching, that Christians are to be in community with one another. Christians are to be in committed church fellowship with one another. We are to be in fellowship and, and community with one another. You can, by the way, did you know that within the New Testament, it is impossible to be in the will of God? It is impossible to be in the will of God outside of and in community accountability with the local church. We are designed to be together. Now, he has to, one of the reasons he has to seek these people is because he didn't start the church here. He didn't start the church entire, so he's got to go and look for them, and, and he needs to find them. And guess what? When he gets there, these believers start telling Paul, Not to do what he has set his mind to do, which is to go to Jerusalem. They say, you you know what, you can't do that. In fact, we see it in the words. They, They kept telling Paul through the Spirit, that's interesting, through the Spirit not to go to Jerusalem. Now we have a problem. Which one is the will of God? We have contrary interests and desires here. Paul feels compelled through the Spirit to go, and they feel compelled by the Spirit not to go. Who's right and who's wrong? This is not an area where Paul can go, you know what, in Deuteronomy 12, you know, it's just not there. So what do we do? Because what we have here is Paul feels compelled by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. 
You see that up there. And these people feel compelled that he should not go. So what are we dealing with here? Are we talking about Paul's bravery or are we talking about Paul's mistake? How do we know the will of God? By the way, all of us have been in this place, have we not? If Scripture is not clear, what am I supposed to do within its teaching? If I have two or more options in front of me, both which seem to be acceptable, which one do I choose? Where to, here, the here we have, do I go to Jerusalem or not? But on a contemporary note, if we can just pick up this principle and take it out of the you know, 58 AD and set it into 2000 and. 22, is that where we are today? 2022, we got the same principle here. Do I marry Susie or do I marry Betty? Jimmy or Johnny? This house or that house? This church or that church? This job or that job? Do I, do I go into full-time Christian ministry or do I, do I invest in the secular world and share the gospel there? Now, I want you to notice something here. We know that Paul didn't start this church And by the way, he didn't even know these people. We see that there. He had to go look for them, and he stayed there seven days. He had to go find them. Yet look at how they leave one another within a week of fellowship with one another. It says this, They all, with their wives and their children, escorted us until we were out of the city, and kneeling down on the beach and praying, we said farewell to one another. This is a little bit peripheral, but we won't spend a lot of time. It is biblical. It's peripheral, and then we'll get back to the will of God here. Believers share the most precious thing in the world in common. Believers share the most precious thing in the world in common, and that thing that we share in common is what? Does anyone have an answer? What do we share in common? Talk to me. Jesus Christ. Not only do we share Jesus Christ and him crucified in common, but we have a deposit until the day of redemption called the what? Talk to me. The Holy Spirit, who guides, cheers, directs, convicts. We share this in common, friends. If you don't feel like you have much in common with those in church, you might want to check your spiritual pulse. You might want to check your spiritual pulse. These people around you right now in this room, as you pivot your head to the left and to the right and front and back, these are your brothers and sisters in Christ. And if truly redeemed, you share the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ and God the Father, the triune God in common. And that should be an overwhelming connection. More than politics, more than the red ripple on Tuesday, all right? More than essential oils and more than sports. Are you following me here? We share Christ. It was with this kind of love that they spoke to him through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. That's, that's the source of their speaking the, their love and what they share for in common with one another. There is a distinction here that we have to see. It's not only that the Holy Spirit told them that Paul should not go. That's not the whole picture here. But they knew what would happen if Paul did go. They knew what would happen if Paul did go. And through the Spirit, through the Spirit of love, through the Spirit of, of, of community and, and close-knitted hearts, and they're praying and they're, they're saying goodbye to one another, it's through the Spirit of love and, and the Holy Spirit that they wanted to keep Paul from going through this. Allow me to explain. I want you to hear this. I'm going to say it twice. I want you to hear this. Sometimes bad counsel can come from the right heart. Sometimes bad counsel can come from loving motives. They don't want Paul to be hurt. 
They might want Paul to stay with them and have fellowship with them. They're, they're, they're getting to know and love one another. Therefore, through the Spirit that they share with one another, they say, Paul, we don't want this to happen to you. Don't go. Sometimes bad counsel can come from the right heart. This week, uh, I, my wife and I, we called Kelsey Tyler. Where's Kelsey Tyler? Kelsey Tyler's right over there. And uh, we called her on, on Wednesday. And I don't know if you know this, but Kelsey is deciding whether or not um, you were down in Kansas, if I remember correctly. And you're trying to figure out, what is the Lord's will for my life? Do I go into, into this mission field or do I stay at Trinity? And those of you are in favor of Kelsey never leaving this church signify by saying, I. Oppose? That would have been fun, wouldn't it? Would have been fun for Kelsey. And we are so blessed, by the way, to have many people, young people in our church, decide to go into full-time missionary work. Now, Pastor Jory has known her much longer. I think, Pastor Jory, you baptized Kelsey. You did, because I went on her Facebook page. And you have way, way too many pictures on that, all right? Took me like three days to find pictures here. But, Kelsey, were you saved here at Trinity as well? So you were saved, you were baptized, you've been part of our church for a very long time. I've known Kelsey since 2006. This was Kelsey in 2006 wearing the same hat she wears today. (laughs) If you know Kelsey at all. Now, Amy and I love you, Kelsey. It's difficult, but we love you. All right, I'm joking. We love you. And I'll be honest with you, like these people on this text, please don't go. You are our sister in Christ, and Amy and I love you. Trinity is not Trinity without Kelsey and her stupid hat. That's what I wrote in my notes. <laughs> but this desire that Amy and I have, and I'm sure many of you have as well, that comes out of Christian love may very well not be great advice because it comes from what we want. Even though it's from the right place, it may not be the greatest advice. So Kelsey, find God's pleasure. I hope it's with us. In fact, I'm pretty certain it is. But if not, like these people, we will walk with you to the city of, edge of city of Grand Rapids, and we will pray with you, and we will bid you farewell, and we will wish God's blessing on your life. So how then do we know what the will of God is? Well, let's keep looking at the text because there's a couple stars we have to put up on the bulletin board before we get done here that gives us more insight on how to find God's will in what appears to be a thought salad from Dr. Luke. Now grab this. On the next day, we left and we came to Caesarea. Now, here's good news. Paul can finally relax his travel schedule. He can finally relax his travel schedule. Caesarea is the port city of Jerusalem. He is no longer bound to ship schedules and wind speeds and port delays and the unloading of ships. He can now travel by foot or by horse to Jerusalem on his schedule and bring the love offering to the persecuted church there from the church, uh, Gentile church in Asia. 
He can do that. He is now no longer dependent on other things. And, by the way, he's got a little extra time on his hands, and he, he just doesn't want to get there as fast as he can. He wants to get there at Pentecost. So we got a little gap time here. So, hmm. He takes some time and he finds some more fellowship, community. And look what it says here. And lo and behold, he finds the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven. No, not, 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 not the twelve disciples, but of the seven. We'll unpack that here. If you remember, Philip was one of the Hellenistic Jews who was chosen to oversee the distribution of food to the widows in the church in Acts chapter 6. He was one of the first quasi-deacons of the church. I say quasi because Acts chapter 6 foreshadows what deacon ministry was going to be, and it was realized in 1 Timothy chapter 3. We know this, in fact, because Philip's not at the church in Jerusalem anymore. He's a Hellenistic Jew, and he traveled out of Jerusalem and went back home. And that, that office ministry in Acts chapter 6, and these men dissolved... But it's realized in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Now, with that being said, let us remember that last time Paul and Philip were around each other, they were not good friends. They were better and bitter enemies. And now they have fellowship in their house with one another because believers share the most precious thing in common, which is Jesus Christ and the deposit of the Holy Spirit. And as he sits at the table, now I found this humorous. I found this humorous because my brain is... Any, any words that you have? My brain is what? Talk to me. Nerd. Nerd. I heard odd. Thank you. All right. This is how my brain works. He's sitting at the table of Philip, one of the original quasi-deacons in Acts chapter 6, and he has four daughters. But much more than that, he had four virgin daughters. Now, in my mind, can we just take a moment and understand how difficult Philip's life was? Four daughters. I mean, I, I can think of a couple men in our church. I know like Doc Dickerson has three daughters and he bought a sailboat. Mark Hurd, where's Mark? My brother Mark, how many daughters do you have? Four daughters. I think now we understand a little bit more about Mark. All right. I have one, and baby, I love you. I love you, but four of you? I I'm just teasing. In fact, I like how the text says it here. Look at this. It says here, um, I mean, to look at, you can even hear the sympathy written within the scriptures here. Look, it says, Luke says, now this man had. Now you'll notice within the text, the prophetess don't even speak. They don't even have any advice for Paul. Luke's just saying, good Lord, pray for Philip. <laughs> Daniel's in heaven going, well, the lion's den was scary, but whoa, at least I didn't have four daughters. It's just baked into the text there, and I love that. Write that down. Now, he doesn't even say that they talk. He just says, there's four of them. Mark, can you imagine if all four of your daughters were prophetess? No. The fact that Luke tells us that they are of a virgin status here tells us that they were likely set aside for a special ministry within the early church. You'll find that kind of unpacked in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 34. And they have what is called the spiritual gift of prophecy in the early church. Now let us remember, much of the New Testament is not written at this time. A couple books, maybe. 
It's not written at this time. And it says here that they were prophetesses. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10. These women prophetess, by the way, complemented the ministry of the apostles. Ephesians chapter 4, 11. Much like today's deaconesses complement the ministry of the elders in the church today. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 11. These type of prophets or prophetesses would generally receive revelation from God concerning matters that would later be covered in Scripture. And as time went on and the Word of God was developed and the Word of God was completed, their main thrust of ministry the prophets had in the church is they would reiterate or echo the existing divine revelation. 1 Corinthians 14, 4, 37, Revelation 9, John 5. As the Word of God became completed, they would echo that. You see, as the Bible completed, I'm sorry, as the Bible was completed, the ministry of prophecy transitioned from primarily new revelation to proclaiming established revelation. We see this in the fact that when Paul wrote the early letters, such as 1 Corinthians, he spoke about the the gift of prophecy all of the time. Then in some of his middle books, like that in Ephesus, he, he talked about the gift of prophecy and elders in the church. And then when he got towards the later books, like 1 Timothy, there is no mention of the gift of prophecy and that teaching was to be done through the elders. We can see the word of God developing, unrolling in the history of the church. Now with this in mind, notice they didn't give Paul any advice, these four daughters. At least we're not told that they did. It came from a prophet named Agabus who came down from Judea. Now the words Judea are very important here to the detail about what is about to happen. But first, let me tell you, we probably don't need to take the prophecy from Agabus to its most mystical extent. Let me Allow me to unpack that. I want you to think about it. How many people knew that if Paul went to Jerusalem, there was going to be some trouble? How many people knew that? Talk to me. Everyone. Everyone knew that. Paul has three times, in fact, when he was in Miletus on his dead time delay as he's teaching the elders of Ephesus, he says, I will never see you again and I will be bound when I go to Jerusalem. And they wept with him and they had to tear themselves away from one another. Then Paul already knew it. He spoke about it. The elders of Ephesus wept with him. By the way, the disciples entire, they and their families walked him to the edge of the city and they also told him not to go. They begged him in the spirit not to go. And now they come here and this prophet comes in and what he says is really no spiritual secret or monumental revelatory moment. Everyone knows this. In fact, we see this hinted in the word Judea. Now, where they are at, Caesarea, Paul's in Caesarea, is a highly Gentile area. It was not considered part of Judea or the Jewish uh, land in an ethnic sense. It had a large Roman occupational forces located there. So even though it was part of Israel, even though it was technically Jewish, there were so many Roman Gentile soldiers in that city that they literally just kind of wrote Caesarea off. Allow me to explain this, and I'm going to use the politics in Texas. 
Caesarea is to Israel what Austin is to Texas. Is anyone following that? How many here said, I have no idea what you're talking about? Okay, thank you. It was considered a Gentile port. Now, Agabus doesn't come from Caesarea. He comes from Judea, a very Jewish culture nearer to Jerusalem. And, it has a great, and he has a greater awareness and wisdom of the tension in Jerusalem towards Christianity. Peterson and F.F. And F. Bruce talk about that. But Paul has been away for a while now. Agabus is saturated in the current culture and temperature. So it's not so much that he has a mystical prophecy here, as inclusive as it may be. I'm not trying to minimize that. The fact that he shows up right then and there is obviously the work of God. The fact that he has a prophecy is the work of God. But what I'm saying here is we don't have to elevate it into some mystical realm here. But rather, he has a keen awareness of what will happen because he's from Judea, and he knows it. Let me summarize this. He brings truth and wisdom to the table. He brings truth and wisdom to the table. I think sometimes we get enamored with the curious words and the exciting words in the Word of God that we fail to see the room of context they arrive in. And here's where we get the the third gold star of how do we discern God's will in indiscernible areas. Another way to say it is Agabus brings wisdom, he brings truth, and he brings experience. He brings wisdom, he brings truth, and he brings experience to the table. If I could summarize it in a contemporary word, he brings gray hair. When you see gray hair, talk to me. What do you see? I mean, I, there's a lot of, lot of words we could say, but, but practically speaking, when you see gray hair, what do they bring to the table? Talk to me. They've been there. They've done that. They've broke that. They've fixed that. They are well ahead of you on the trail called life, and they can tell you great advice and counsel. I'll be honest with you. I don't make a single major decision without the counsel of at least three people who have less hair than I do. More knowledge, more experience, more wisdom. Amy and I, some of our closest friends, are generations older than us, and they offer us wise counsel. Agabus brings that to the table. Now, knowing all this, look at this. He took Paul's belt. By the way, that word belt in the Greek is a money belt. He took Paul's fanny pack, all right? He took Paul's money belt and he bound his own feet, not Paul's feet, Agabus's feet, and his hands. And he says, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, Jews at Jerusalem will bind you, who comes, whoever owns this belt, and deliver him in the hands of the Gentiles. Now, notice something here. He is agreeing with everyone else that is saying these things. Now notice, he doesn't tell Paul what to do. He doesn't tell Paul what to do, nor does he interpret the prophecy. He just tells Paul what's going to happen. But boy, oh boy, did everyone else interpret it for him. It says here, and when, they, when we had heard this, there it is in the orange, we as well as everyone else in the residence began begging him not to go to Jerusalem. There it is again. What is he to do? What is the will of God here? I want you to notice something here. Look who joined in on the fight to stop Paul. 
It's, it's right there in that pronoun we. Do you see it there? We tried to stop. Who is writing this letter? Talk to me. Doctor who? <laughs> Doctor who? Did you get that? I just got that. Stupid show. Luke. Luke is arguing as well. Even Dr. Luke is pleading with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And it is at this point that everyone is telling Paul not to go. So the question that is raised is how do we know the will of God in times like these? How do we know the will of God in times like these? Well, before we answer that, we have to look at one more important thing for us to know God's will in areas that are not clear in Scripture. And it's found in Paul's response. He says this, Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart for. For am I not ready to be bound? Even die in Jerusalem for the name of Jesus Christ. This is our fourth gold star we're going to get to here. I like how one old-time pastor wrote when I was reading this week. He says this, It is a waste of time to try and consider the will of God for your life unless you are 100% committed to him. It is a waste of time to try and figure out what the will of God is in an area of life when you withhold large swaths of it at the same time. Paul was ready even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Another way to say this is, and this is the fourth gold star of finding God's will for our life, is this, to discern the will of God, you must write him a blank check for your life. A blank check for your life on the day of salvation to not just your Savior, Jesus Christ, but what the Savior produces, the Lord of your life, as an act of worship, we must give the Lord a blank check. In fact, Paul will unpack this in Romans chapter 12 when he says this, Therefore, I urge you, brothers... In view of God's mercy, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, which is your spiritual act of worship. The NIV says, which is your reasonable, the minimal act of worship. And do not be conformed to this world. Don't hold anything back, but be transformed by what? How? The renewing of your mind through the word of God, which is what we're trying to do here this morning, so that you can prove, look what it says, the will of God, which is good, reasonable, and acceptable, and perfect. We have to give them our lives. How fruitile it is, how worthless is our attempt to be interested in the will of God while holding large portions of our life from him. It would be like me taking all of my money out of my wallet and then walking into a room and saying, I want to help in any way that I can with all the money that I have with me. Am I really interested in helping as much as I can? So it is here that we come to the end. How do we know or discern the will of God in areas where his word is not necessarily crystal clear? This thought salad of random possibilities, locations, sales schedules, and contradictory desires of godly people is placed here by Luke so that we can glean some principles on how to seek God's will in unclean, unclean, unclear areas. So here's what we're going to boil it down to is these five gold stars. Number one, obey the word of God. Obeying the clear instruction of God's word is by far the lion's share of being in his will. 
90, I'm just going to throw a number out there. I think it's a fair number. 98% of your life is settled by just submitting to this book. But what do we do with the 2% left over? And I'm just grabbing a number there, all right? Please don't write me an email arguing me on the 2%, all right? Number two, are you in biblical community and accountability with other believers? Make sure you are faithfully committed to a fellowship in the church of Jesus Christ in an accountable relationship to one another. Number three, do you have gray hair in your life? Are you seeking out wise counsel from those who have greater awareness, greater keen wisdom on areas of life? We find that in Proverbs 11, Job chapter 12, and sprinkled throughout the New Testament. Are you seeking the safety of many counselors? Number four, have you written the blank check to Jesus Christ? Another way to say is, have have you been dead to yourself, alive in Christ? Are you picking up your cross and following him? Give Christ a blank check in our lives so that we are open to his leading. And then finally, the last one, familiarity, not formula. Familiarity, not formula. God's will is not found in a formula of X's and O's and just do's and don'ts. The will of Jesus Christ is found oftentimes in discernible areas by a close personal relationship with him. Yet how often do we want to know the will of God in our lives while living in disobedience to his word, isolated from his bride, avoiding wise counsel, withholding our whole lives, while not growing in our walk with him? My friends, the reason we seek God's will in such a way as this is because we're not seeking his will. We are seeking his blessing on our will. But what if after all of this right here, What after all of this, I make the wrong choice? What if I make the wrong choice? May I tell you this? You won't and you can't. If you're doing this, you won't and you can't. Because if you are at this point in your life, If God's word is a light and a lamp and the water like a a deer panteth for and, and, and you delight yourself in the law of the Lord and your desire is him. And you're in biblical, accountable community with the church and you're getting many counselors and you've given your life to the Lord and you have a walk with him. Here it is, grab this. You are already in his will. You're in it. You're immersed in it. And now it's just about what he chooses to do with your life. Hence the words at the end of verse 14, the will of the Lord be done. Friends, too often we are worried about the 2% of God's will we do not know while neglecting the 98% we do. Well, Pastor, how can we know 98% of God's will? Well, that's simple. Obey the Word of God and seek a growing relationship with Him. And I was thinking this week, I've been married to Amy and she, me, for nearly 27 years. On many matters, I, I could tell you 
what Amy's will is for me in my life without even asking her and her for me. I know much of her will because I know her. If you told me, Brett, it's okay to put your socks on the table, I would not have to consult the manual. I would immediately tell you that that is not Amy's will for my life. How do I know that? I know her. Much of God's will for your life is the same way. When you know Christ well, you know his will well. How well do you know your Lord? Are you obedient to his word? Are you in faithful church accountability? Do you have many counselors? Have you given him a blank check? And are you familiar with him? Not a formula. Gracious Heavenly Father, dismiss us with your blessing. Lord, I pray that we would be a group of believers who are so familiar with you, so loved with you, that all we want is to obey. Dismiss us with your blessing, Lord. We love you. We ask this in your son's precious name. Amen. I love you guys. You are dismissed.